So have you heard the story about the Russian sound man? No. There's a story about a Czech one, too. Feeling kind of sleepy, really in alert. It's reminiscent of all the times that I fell asleep in church. Beautiful people, welcome to the Second Pot Podcast. I am Caleb Spiker, and I am here with Serena Wolf, and we are here hoping that you are caffeinated and ready to talk about Jesus. So, in this week's sermon, Caleb, you talked about the number of times a day that Muslims stop and pray, and I've always been. Um, I don't want to say envious, but I've always admired the faith and the dedication of Muslims who engage in that practice. And you said that's rooted in Christianity. So can you say some more about that? Yeah, well, in in all fairness, it's really rooted in Judaism, right? In Judaism, uh, the practice of praying, you know, three to four times a day is, you know, pretty common and was common clear back before the time of Jesus. Um, But early Christians adopted that um, and made it their own. Um, You know, we see, you know, a lot of the the sub-Eastern church. So we think about, you know, the Western church Mm -hmm. being Roman Catholicism, the Eastern church being Orthodoxy, the sub-Eastern church being, um, you know, the churches of North Africa and... um, Western Asia, you know, like the okay. Coptic Church, the Syrian Church, you know, yes, these other um, these other sorts of traditions, um, and we see, you know, clear back into the fourth and fifth century, this practice of you know facing east because the the idea was that Jesus would be returning from the east, um, laying in specific body positions, saying prayers uh, in in anticipation of the Savior's return. And this is, you know, in in some form, it is carried out in all of our traditions, right? So you have, you know, the Roman Catholic practice of the daily office, um, you know, coming out of uh, the rule of St. Benedict and, you know, the seven times a day that uh, Benedictines pray. You have... um, the, the daily prayers of, you know, the Anglican Church, uh, which John Wesley was a practitioner of. Um, so John Wesley every day is getting up at, you know, 4.30 a.m. and praying. He's praying again sometime at midday. He's praying again in the evening. Um, and this is, I mean, this is a practice that we see throughout church history, these times of daily consistent prayer and scripture reading. Um, in part because it just grows our souls um, to continually be consuming God's word, but also, um, and we talked a little bit, about, little bit about this on Sunday. It helps. It helps with keeping our vision focused and an awareness of God's presence in our lives. And it's a good thing, which is why we're doing it here. That's why we're you know uh, we're experimenting with the daily withdrawal. 
um, not withdrawal, which is what would happen if I tried to go 48 hours without a diet due, um, but withdraw, this idea of withdrawing from the normal patterns of 21st century hustle, bustle, crazy rat race, North American culture, and finding 10, 15, 20, two, you know, <laughs> finding some period of time to get away from it and be centered in the presence of God. Yeah. And one of the things that you had said was, you know, if you want to be countercultural, this is presently one way to do it. At no point are we encouraged to stop and Never. disconnect and sit in silence and connect with something deeper. Unless, of course, you practice yoga or meditation. Like there are all these other spiritualities that do this really well. And we have let that part of our history slip. So I'm super excited about this experiment. It's part, it's in our, um, the email that went out to everyone this morning for our weekly scripture reading. And I can't wait to hear what people experience and what, and see what God does. Yeah. Christian culture seems to have embraced that Puritan work ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, but somewhere along the line, we missed out on, um, the intentional times of rest and, um, and reflection, and delight in the presence of God. So yeah, hopefully we can, little by little, start to claim that back and make it a part of our, of our, you know, lives in Christ. Amen. All right, Pastor Serena, I don't know if you've checked the mailbag here recently or not, but there was a question in there about the Global Methodist Church what it is, where it comes from, what it means for us as United Methodist-type people. Yeah, I saw that. Um, so the Global Un or the global Methodist Church, uh, where to begin with this? Let's start at the beginning, uh, because that's always the best place to begin, right? So the United Methodist Church is a merger of the Methodist Episcopal and the... Evangelical so, United Brethren. Yes, thank you. Um, and when we formed uh, over time, we have increasingly become kind of big tent. And this is all based upon our book of discipline, which is long, and it contains our doctrines and all our rules. Um, and there has been growing disagreement. Um, the presenting issue for the church is the inclusion of um, people who are in same-sex relationships uh, being ordained as clergy or being licensed for pastors. Uh, but the underlying issue is so much deeper. Um, we have included such a range of theological positions that we go from uh, people who really f would fit very well in the Southern Baptist Convention um, they don't necessarily buy into sacraments. Uh, they don't necessarily support women in ministry. They're, they're, just, they're just good Baptist people. They don't baptize people. babies. They don't baptize yeah. babies because that's a sacrament, and that's, that's an important mark of Methodism, I, I think. 
Um, and then we go clear over to the other side where we have progressive uh, Christians who see Christianity as primarily symbolic. Um, they do not believe that you have to have faith in a bodily resurrection of Christ. Um, so in my opinion, they are approaching more of a humanist spirituality. Uh, they are not necessarily Christians in any traditional meaningful sense. And if these groups try to live together, we're going to have conflict. And this is exactly what's happening. So several years ago, a um, renewal group called the Wesleyan Covenant Association formed with the hope to, you know, spark a, an embracement of our Wesleyan roots and of more uh, traditional Christianity. Uh, so now we're at the point where the United Methodist Church is finally looking at a split so that we can go our separate ways and do the work God has called us to do without the distraction of fighting. The Wesleyan Covenant Association has birthed a new church. Um, it is not in existence yet, but it is coming with the split of the United Methodist Church, and it is called the Global Methodist Church church so uh, the global methodist church they have a website they have a logo they have a mission statement they have a book of doctrine and discipline and one of those things is uh really hopeful the rest is very meh if you ask me um like the book of doctrine discipline is a well-crafted document and um in my opinion you know tells the story of a of a pretty hopeful future for methodism yes um the branding and marketing for this church whew, it's terrible they need to get their money back like or th maybe they didn't spend any money well they should have spent some money <laughs> Because there is nothing inspiring about the any of it. I mean, the logo is bland at best. At worst, it looks like a butt with a cross on it. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, the mission statement sounds like it was created by a committee. And here's the thing about ideas. Ideas are rarely conceived in a vacuum, mm -hmm. but they are never birthed by a committee. But yes, I agree. Uh, committees um, rarely function well, especially the larger they get. We have a sign in our church office, for God so loved the world that he did not send a committee. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so, you know, you, you look at the, the marketing of the Global Methodist Church, and it feels like it was done by a committee of white guys in their late 50s. Now, in Microsoft Publisher. In Microsoft Publisher, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it just it feels like, hey, how, how can we kind of say something for everyone without saying anything? And it's not like... The Book of Doctrine and Discipline, it's distinctly Wesleyan, it's distinctly Trinitarian, it presents a beautiful vision of the future, 
Yes. The actual like marketing, like the the elevator speech stuff. It's just like why? What like how how did you go from this this um taking you know united methodism and cutting it away to its most primitive form in this 95 page book of doctrine discipline which by the way is the right length yes (laughs) i mean this is what it was meant to be it was meant to fit it right like the the circuit riders could take it with them yeah easily yeah yeah um so yeah so i mean kind of the the big picture um yeah, I, I was talking to a buddy about this, and I said, do you think they intentionally made it uncool so that people wouldn't want to join because it's cool? He said, I don't think they did it on purpose, but yeah, that's basically what happened. <laughs> but anyway, so, I mean, big picture, like, I think that there are, um, you know, it's it's not an easy decision to be made Um, because, you know, there are lots of factors going into it, but there are, it is definitely a more church friendly version of Wesleyanism than what the United Methodist Church has become. Now, can you explain what you mean by that? I sure can. Um, so part of the reason why we have this big tent in United Methodism is because all property is held in trust by the annual conference Mm -hmm. which means churches which raise money to build their buildings maintain their buildings furnish their buildings don't own any of it it's all owned by the annual conference which means that you know if in the life of a church they stop being methodist which has happened in many of our churches they Mm -hmm. are methodist in name only there is no way for them to just come out and say, look, we're no longer Methodist. We don't want to be a part of the team anymore because they're building in their checkbook and all of that is owned by the annual conference. One of the big changes that we see, oh, in the second way that the United Methodist Church is not church, um, it's not a very church-friendly deal, is guaranteed appointments, Yeah, which have... Um, basically means that once a pastor is in the guild, you can't get rid of them unless they've done something terrible. Well, if if someone presses charges against them, and there yeah. are multiple ways you can charge, or multiple things for which you can charge a pastor, and then um, they have to undergo church trial and be removed. But uh, as we've seen, doesn't that doesn't happen. So, so you have this system where local churches bought and paid for a building that isn't theirs. They have pastors assigned to them that they have no say in, some of which aren't very good. What the Global Methodist Church does to remedy that is first get rid of the trust clause, which means that the building and the assets will be the property of the local church. Mm-hmm which is a huge win for the local church. Um, and second, it'll change the, um, the appointment process so that the church has a much bigger role in it. Mm-hmm. Currently, our appointments are done um, with a committee that 
uh, sits around the bishop and they, you know, move pieces around their chessboard uh, to make sure there's a pastor in every pulpit. Sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, so for example, I mean, this is, I mean, this is, this is the language of it. When a new pastor is brought to a church for the first time, it's not an interview. It's an introduction. Right. The decision's already been made. Mm-hmm. Unless there are wild circumstances that make it so that it's not going to work. Um, for the most part, the decision's already been made. Like, there is no, um, you know. There's no further discernment. No. Unless they're huge, like you said, yeah. extenuating circumstances or red flags. So, I mean, from a local church perspective, um, you know, it's, it is really hard on paper to look at these two options and be like, oh, yeah, we want the one where we don't own our building and they tell us who our pastor will be rather than the one where we own our building and we have, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, I don't think it's going to be an open call system where, you know, you go and you find your own pastor. Um, but there will be a process where multiple pastors are brought forward and there's, um, there's a two-way discernment rather than um, you know, the bishop and cabinet making the whole decision. Now, I do want to point out that, yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about the trust clause, um, although it does create cohesion it creates cohesion by coercion, which doesn't usually work well. Um, but I will say, um, for wealthier churches whose apportionments are higher, it's easy to complain because we do see a lot of governmental bloat in our denomination. Lord knows there's a lot of money wasted. But there's also a lot of money that goes to doing good. So my home church... Um, while I was there at least, and I assume they still do, receives a lot of grants from the conference because the church is made up so much of college students. And guess what college students don't have? Money! Um, so to continue functioning functioning, and reach students... Are you going to say discipline? Well, that too, say but... College students don't have the discipline to, you know, be... Go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't typically have money. Um, so we got grants from the conference, and that money supported a lot of important work that the church would not have necessarily been able to do otherwise. So some of your apportionment dollars go to support really good ministries or to support rural churches where there's a lot of poverty, um, and they're, you know, in danger of closing. But if the church closes, there's not many other places to go. Um, and as for as far as guaranteed appointments go, you know, I think that um, when we look at education and we think about tenure for a professor, that is supposed to protect the professor from 
complaints that the professor is teaching things that students don't like. Um, it is not always popular to preach Christ. Unfortunately, uh, what happens is people have started preaching a different Christ and have not been held accountable for that. Um, so the guaranteed appointments protects the pastors who preach the gospel from churches who don't want to hear it. It also uh, protects female clergy um, and um, clergy who are people of color. The Methodist church is still predominantly white in America. Um, and we still, in any group of people, are going to deal with sexism and racism. It's there because it's people who are sexist and racist, right? So I do have some concerns as a female clergy person that um, I may have trouble finding an appointment because there are underlying biases, biases, biases. Um, I've had people say, I don't come to church when you preach because of your voice. Um, I've had people say, gosh, you lead like a man. But when a woman leads like a man, that's... That's quite a compliment, right? Well, <laughs> that depends on how it's said. <laughs> um, it's, it, ideally, I would be free to lead and speak the way God has created me um, and not have that held against me but again as long as there are people with racist and sexist ideas and even as long as there are people who don't examine whether or not they have those ideas and and pray for those to be uh, eliminated I think it's going to be hard for women uh, and I don't think the new church has taken that seriously enough mm. um so I, I have some concerns, but I, but again, I am hopeful because the doctrine and the discipline, like we include, we, the new church <laughs> includes, I just showed my cards. The new church includes the creeds. Um, it has less of a burden on local churches to pay apportionments. Uh, hopefully there will not be as much bloat because bishops don't get to be around forever. Um, I would like to see bishops be paid no more than the lowest paid clergy person because the higher up in church you go, you're supposed to be a servant, right? Uh, anyway, so, yeah. But it, it's a better alternative, I think, than the United Methodist Church in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I... Um you know, as I've talked to some muckety mucks in the the new um, the new expression, you know, I've I've raised some of those concerns, um, and they, you know, so Serena, I know you're a huge NFL fan. <laughs> huge! I live yeah. for the National Football Labor Union. Close enough. Thanks. Um, so. There, uh, in the NFL, there is something called the Rooney Rule. And basically what it means is that uh, every time a NFL franchise wants to hire a new head coach, a new general manager, they are required to 
as one of their interviews interview a minority candidate. And um, and when I raised you know that same concern you have because I have the same one, they said, well, you know, we're going to have the the Rooney rule. It's like <laughs> that hasn't worked in the NFL. What mm-hmm. makes you think it'll work here? What do you mean it hasn't worked in the NFL? Mm-hmm. Like. The Pittsburgh Steelers have Mike Tomlin as their head coach. I said, yeah, and who's the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers? His last name is Rooney. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the people who are committed to it will continue to be committed to it. But will it be a wide, um, a widely accepted thing? I mean, that's that's yet to be seen. Um, But again, as someone who primarily is an advocate of the local church, while I am concerned about um, non-white, non-male clergy g- being given um, the the correct uh, opportunities that, that they should, um, I find myself at least as frustrated with the way guaranteed appointments have played out in West Ohio. Amen. Where um, where we have no recourse for lazy clergy. Um, I have a, a friend who's in, who, who does some consultation on, on church finance and administration kind of things. And he was telling me about a pastor in our conference who, when they took their new appointment... His first question was, will this church be able to support me until I retire? What? Like, if that's your first question, you are in the wrong industry. You are in the wrong industry. So I just want to point this out because another unfortunate thing that happens is when you are, quote unquote, second career clergy, um, you come in behind the ball because you don't have as much experience is what people think. Um, So here's the thing about second career clergy, though. Um, I have not met a second career clergy person who looks at this as a career. This is a calling. We were called out. met a couple. (laughs) Well, okay. But, But most of, right, we were called out of a career. I'm not, I'm not here for a career. I'm here to do what God has called me to do. Um, and so I get really discouraged by career clergy. Um, maybe in the global Methodist church, we could have a ministry that works to help clergy understand how their skills can apply to other careers in this world because, one, you may need to be bivocational. And two, your your call, you can screw that up. You can (laughs) screw up your call. You can. Uh, And it would be nice to have uh, other folks telling you, like, okay, so here's how you make a resume. Here's how your skills apply to other areas. Let us help you find a new path in life. And let us talk to you about what that means. It would also be nice if there were some type of funding to help clergy who really do just need a freaking sabbatical. I I think about my transition from my last church to Trinity, and I was a hot mess. 
because the church I came from was a hot mess when I left. And I think how great it would have been if I had had the ability to take two months off and get some counseling and how much more prepared I would have been to come into a new church. Um, yeah. So I have said this before and I will say it again. Someone needs to make me czar of uh, the church because I think this is the right model. Basically, we take all clergy people and we say, look, there are three kinds of appointments. You have a pastoral appointment, mm -hmm. which is a minimum of 10 years. Mm. You get appointed. Yeah. You make it work or we don't have anything for you until 10 years from the day you're appointed. Nothing guaranteed. Yeah. So... Like, figure it out. Like, you don't get to, after 18 months, say, these stiff-necked people, get me out of here. Mm -hmm. Like, minimum 10 years, the mm -hmm. pastoral appointment. I like that. The triage appointment, mm. maximum of three years. Mm -hmm. These people are going in to churches that they know are hurting and have been in the midst of conflict and they are just there to steady the ship get back to the basics bring primitive christianity preach the gospel bring healing mm -hmm. and that is not something that like you do forever right like right. you you get the church back to a place where it's ready to be pastored going forward with mm -hmm. a pastoral appointment mm -hmm. And then the third appointment is um, basically hospice chaplaincy. Mm, yeah. So yeah. churches that we know probably aren't going to survive, and you just go and love on them. Yeah. There's no expectation of growth. There's, you know, expectation for discipleship still. You better believe it, right? Because, like, no one... No one wants to just be stagnant in their faith. Um, and then, you know, so so you have these three kinds of appointments, and you make it really clear what each one is. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you have um, a church that's a hot mess, you can go and you can say, look, this is not. Because here's, okay, peeking behind the curtains, every district superintendent from the beginning of time, has told every pastor, this church is great. You're going <laughs> to love it. You can be here, you know, like it's ready to grow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And sometimes that's true. Yes. And sometimes it's really not. That's right. Um, if we, on the front end, say here are the three types of appointments and be really clear about what is the uh, the superintendent's expectation, what is the bishop's expectation for the church and for the appointment? I mean, I think that clarity can only help. Yeah. Here's the, the thing, though. Um, I agree. I think that that's a fantastic way to structure and sort out where a church is in its life and the possibility for clergies. Of course, there's also, I think, and hope there'll be, I haven't read the whole discipline. I hope there'll continue to be extension ministry. Yeah. 
Um, but here's the deal for that second kind, that three-year max, pastor's going to come in and get you back to the basics. You have to admit that there's something wrong in a church. Oh, the, the church, like, I, I have never seen a church that that lacks the self-awareness to say, like, you know, like, there's a reason why pastors get run out of churches, right? Like, th- th- they know that there are, are issues. Like, I, 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 am, I am yet to see a church. Like, they're, like, here's, man, clergy make me so mad. These... These educated ivory tower jerks who say, oh, my church is so hard. Mm. You know what? You've told me your last four churches are real hard. Maybe it's you. Or maybe, maybe it's that leading a church is hard work. Because, I mean, look at Jesus. How many people, like, everybody left. Right. Like at one, like Jesus says, eat my body, drink my blood. And people are like, what? And they like, this isn't going to be easy. Leading people is never easy. Not even a business. This is not easy work. That's okay. It's okay for it to not be easy. But yes, I think you're right. Maybe the problem, if A plus B equals C and A plus D equals C and A plus E equals C, the only constant is A. A equals C. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, we start to sort that out if we have these these three kinds of appointments, right? Like yeah. if, if we have a person that in 2025 takes a 10-year appointment, in 2027 they're out of it, they get to do some, um, you know, some chaplaincy work mm-hmm. until 2035 where they're given another 10-year appointment that by 2038 they're out of it so they do a little bit more chaplaincy work you know maybe do some some tent mending in 2045 they're given another 10-year appointment and in 2046 they're out of it again guess what yeah it is not the church's fault now we have that exact same thing happening except we don't have those seven years right in between right we have in 2020 someone takes an appointment by 2022 they're in a new appointment. By 2025, they're in another appointment. Mm-hmm. By 2027, they're in another appointment. Yes. And not because they are blowing the doors off the church and uh, the bishop's like, oh my goodness, this person's the best preacher ever. We need to keep putting them in bigger and bigger churches. No, it's because the church declines by 10% every year. They're frustrated. The church is frustrated. Yeah. But now, you flop to the top. Now, I do, so... um, Because one of the unwritten rules of guaranteed appointments is that you rarely make less money in the next appointment than you do in this one, whether you've been successful or not. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's going to change just as economic realities change. Um, But, I mean, we have had clergy people in this conference flop to the top. Yes. Two and three-year appointments never very successful and before they know it they're 10 churches in and while they while the peter principle was true for them 22 years ago it hasn't stopped their progression yes yeah i do it it is interesting though 
Um, and and there are seven local churches in the wake. Yes. Of that clergy person that's been guaranteed appointment that they should be out selling used cars by now. So here's the thing, too, with um, churches who experience that, those churches are now in a cycle and that cycle has to be broken. So for appointment type two that you talked about, um, this is where I said, like, you have to have some courage and be honest. Someone has to come in and tell this church the truth. Just like, um, uh, unfortunately, the church that I came from, there was a betrayal of trust by an appointed clergy person. That church has never been told the truth. Mm. Churches have to, right? Like, if there is a betrayal of trust, the church needs to know the truth. And the church needs to heal and be shepherded. If the church has had, I know another church here in the Columbus area, uh, they are getting ready to have their fourth pastor within the past, like, five years. There was one pastor when I moved to Central Ohio, and since I've moved here, they now have the third pastor leaving. That church needs to be told the truth. Yep. Their leadership board needs to be dismantled. And in a world without trust clause, if a church can't handle the truth— yeah. You say okay. You you go be independent. You figure it out on your own. Yeah. If you don't want, if you don't want the benefits of the franchise, then yeah. you can go figure it out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. we aren't going to continue to bring clergy people here who we think can be successful, right? So it, it goes both ways, right? Like this, yep. this new structure allows both for, for pushing the churches that are truly unhealthy and never getting better out of out of the fold so that they stop abusing clergy and also pushes out clergy who are lazy and ineffective yeah. so that they stop harming churches. Yeah. Now, I want to say that I don't think the majority of churches are clergy killers. Oh, that's I, that's the term for them, right? I, I, Th- That's not the majority of churches. There's this assumption by the boneheaded, blockheaded colleagues that we have that there are a bunch of these places. I am here to tell you there are not. Yeah. And I would even say that this church that I'm thinking of, like getting ready to take their fourth clergy person, it's not that they're clergy killers. They just don't understand the truth of their situation. I, I mean, seriously. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I hope that truth-telling will be a thing. Uh, I do want to bring up one other thing about the global Methodist church. Can I just say that if no one sat down and went GMC and went, oh, no, that's a terrible idea. If no one looked at the acronym for this new church, I am deeply disappointed. What's wrong with GMC? What do you think when you hear GMC? General Motors Corporation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Trucks. Um, What's wrong with trucks? There, There's nothing wrong with trucks, but they're not churches. I mean, but... And my you, family's you a Ford th- fan. I mean, you run into that with, with any... I'm I just mean, saying... Like, would you rather have the Methodist Covenant Church, MCC? I'm just no. saying... I'm just saying... GMC. GMA? <laughs> the, uh, good morning that, america yeah i mean yeah. like yeah or isn't that isn't there some music award the 
anyway, um, so, so that was one thing. I also want to say that um, I hope this church is global. I, uh, the, the movement in the United Methodist Church to create an American conference that can set its own rules separately from the, the global connection is uh, horrible. That's a horrible idea. That's a terrible idea, America. It's pretty racist. It, it is incredibly so to think that we know better than the church tradition or the majority of Christians in this world. Because we in America, we're not the majority. So there are more Christians in China than there are people it, in the United States. See? I mean, I think about... <laughs> well, but seriously, like... Uh, if... Yes, and I can't even. I can't even with this idea. Like, I, and I don't understand how people who are for it can't see that this is terrible. Okay, so that aside, uh, I do hope that this connection stays global um, because we don't know yet quite what's going to happen. Um, but I, I will say, I have zero interest remaining in a church that wants an American conference. I need the faith of my brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Like, I need that, the encouragement and the gifts that God has put in them. I need that, that faith and those gifts because it encourages me. Um, and I think that American clergy, clergy in the West in general, it would be really cool if we had some of our brothers and sisters from Korea or Vietnam or um, e Egypt or, you know, uh, Ghana come and teach us what it looks like to lead a people who uh, want to worship or ju just come and teach us what it looks like to lead and to preach the gospel because I'm not entirely sure we know anymore, but that's just me. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, the practice in the United Methodist Church has been to, um, oh, another church friendly thing. Uh, Episcopal appointments aren't for life either. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm a little on the fence on, you know, like I think that I, I think lifetime appointments for the Episcopal office have been so abused by the UMC that the GMC can't help but take it out yeah um but i'm not sure if that's i'm not sure if they should i don't know i i i can go either way like someone who's you know who strongly feels either way can you know talk me into their position on any given day so um but i do think it's 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 another church friendly sort of thing because if if we if our best pastors rise to the ranks of bishop, which I don't know that they do, but if we assume that that's something that happens. There are a couple. Isn't it a shame that the local church loses, you know, loses those people? Isn't it a shame that bishops, period, don't have a commitment to a local church? Isn't it a shame that our seminaries 
don't have a bishop in residence. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I, I'm with you. I, I have mixed feelings. Um, first off, I can't, how long is the appointment to bishop? Is it six, six years. years? So the reality Which of it doesn't quite seem long to figure out what a bishop exactly, does. Much less exactly. Yeah. If it takes a person a good two to three years to be acclimated to a local church, which it really does, right? Like that's like three years in, you're just being able to get to the place where you can start to make headway. Depends on who you ask. Yeah. Dep I mean, like there I are guess. lots of factors, but I, I would say it's probably true. Um, I'm not sure that six years as a bishop is, is enough t for bishops. To, and But maybe that's the point. Maybe we don't want bishops who are going to come in and try to make changes, right? Um, because it's our general conference that is supposed to change things, not mm -hmm. the bishops. Well, and I, I think part of what it does, too, is that, you know, it— pushes the sphere of influence mm -hmm. down to the general superintendency mm -hmm. um, because you know if you are a bishop for six years you are very much beholden to the work that your general superintendents are doing mm -hmm. because you know you have to trust them from day one Yes. You know, you have to trust that they know what they're doing and they're giving you good information and they know their churches and they know their pastors. And, um, and you know, when things come to your desk, that when you make that call that you're getting good information. Um, yeah. Yeah. Unlike, it, you know, a system where, you know, you can be in one place in 12 years for 12 years like we yeah. have here. Yeah. Or, you know, depending on whether or not your society goes through a pandemic or epidemic. Longer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I there there are a lot of I, I think ultimately there are there is more positive than negative. I just think that some of the negatives are so glaring and so discouraging, especially for people who have been in a church where there's so much infighting. Um, but I am. I'm still hopeful. Um, I honestly would love to continue to be a United Methodist, but um, I just don't know that I can. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question becomes, you know, what do these traditions become without the um, without that pool from a specific pool? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, let's let's be honest. Even if, even if you you know this split happens, there will still be different factions that want to do things Absolutely. differently. Absolutely. Right? Um, you know, in the post-separation UMC, um, if the uh, if those on the spectrum from Orthodox Wesleyanism to uh, post-Southern Baptist leave, that makes the Unitarian voice a lot stronger. Much stronger, yes. Um, because this group that has been committed to to squint, to quenching, you know, squelching, 
that uh, Unitarian voice is gone, right? Like, will the the uh, left of center, um, you know, uh, and here's the thing, like, I, I think there will be orth, Orthodox Wesleyans that stay post-separation. Undoubtedly. Um, but I think they're going to be staying... So I, I think there is there is a mass of just sort of Orthodox Wesleyan people in the center. Mm-hmm. And the ones who really, really, really want to see LGBT ordination will go post-separation. The ones who aren't committed to it and those who don't want to see it will go GMC. I think the Orthodox Wesleyans that stay post-separation in hopes of seeing um, in hopes of seeing LGBT ordination within 15 or 20 years will be very discouraged to see that Orthodox Wesleyanism is no longer. <laughs> yeah. It, and let's be clear about something. I am absolutely not opposed to uh, the LGBTQ community members being ordained. In fact, I think it is essential that we have our LGBTQ brothers and sisters being ordained and leading churches. However, I am equally committed to the tradition of the church that even though I don't like it, says that the church blesses marriages that are between men and women and if you are not faithful in your celibacy or your christian marriage you cannot be a clergy person like i don't like this but this is this is the christian tradition for a very long time and still the tradition in the majority of the world and i yeah I can't remember what I was saying there. <laughs> I still want my brothers and sisters who are single, who, right? Like you, like if you are single, please be ordained and be be cel- be faithful in your celibacy. If you are in the LGBTQ community and you agree with the church's traditional teaching on marriage. We can't exclude you because you are LGBTQ. And I don't think there's any indication that the GMC intends exactly. to, right? And even for our brothers and sisters who are um, trans men or trans women, if you're a trans man and you are married to a woman, you qualify, right? Like, I, I don't, I, my fear is that people will think that everyone in the GMC um, is opposed to LGBTQ rights and opposed to LGBTQ ordination. That's not what, that's, that's not the case. Um, so just to put that out there. Yeah, that's all above my pay grade. I don't, I mean, I am, I am a practitioner of primitive religion. Right, like, 
I I care about the creeds. I care about discipleship. Outside of that, I am perfectly happy to have all sorts of disagreement within the life of the yes. church. Yes. Yes. Me too. But what we cannot be disagreeing on and still be still consider ourselves to be on the same team as it relates to a denomination, a church, mm-hmm. a religion. Mm-hmm. Are things like the divinity of Christ. Like there is no, there is no second position. Like right. if you do not affirm that Jesus is divine, we are not playing on the same team. And by divine, this means Jesus could not have been racist or misogynistic or commit any other thing that we understand as sin. Just putting that out there. Yeah, it's it's always kind of uh, I'm not I've not known what to do with the clergy people that want to say you know Jesus is a racist because if Jesus is a racist then we all should be racist. Yeah, right. Like like you can't have it both ways. Either Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is the second article of the Trinity. Jesus is the one whose likeness we are trying to live into or he's not right like you can't there's no middle ground there you can't say i'm pro the way jesus uh you know feels about those in poverty and anti the way jesus feels about something else right like well you can say that but then you're not a christian that's true You can be a philosopher that likes some of Jesus's teachings and not others, but that means you are not a Christian. And don't get me wrong. Like the, the scraps from the table to the Syrophoenician woman passage. I don't understand it. It bothers me. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm not going to take that passage and say, see, Jesus is a racist. No, because that's not how the church has taught that passage. And the scripture belongs to the church not to us as individuals. Yeah. 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 So so yeah, divinity of Christ, you can't we can't we can't entertain a broad spectrum on that anymore. You know. The Trinity? Yep. The resurrection. The bodily resurrection, right? If if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are all screwed. Well, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, he didn't defeat death. Then none of us have. And right. Like we are wasting right? our time. Like this is like the last hour we've spent recording this podcast has been a catastrophic waste of time, as well as, you know, the last decade of my life and ministry and yours as well. Right. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. You know, divinity of Christ, the Trinity, the resurrection of Christ. I'd even, like, for me, I think the virgin birth of Christ is certainly on that list. I do, too. That's probably one that if you affirm, well, no, no, I think that's that's an essential. Um, there, there are other ways that they could have said young woman that would not have meant 
a young woman who has not been with a man in the marital sense who has not had sex can i say that on this podcast i I just did it's not my podcast Um, yeah so i mean and it's like if we have agreements and, and i have said this for as long as i've been aware of these methodist issues right like if we had agreement on these essentials we could continue to live together and figure out what to do on some of the other stuff yes but we can't like we won't even hold our clergy to teaching the contents of the nicene creed right like that is the baseline like like if if a bishop does not punish a clergy person for teaching things contrary to the nicene creed intentionally Right, because like sometimes we say things oh, we don't Lord. mean to. It slips out, you know. If someone calls out, "Oh, I said that." Oh, shoot, I didn't mean to. Yeah, and then you, you know, you print a retraction, you're done, right? But if you are intentionally teaching things contrary to, you know, the Nicene Creed, the conf- the or the 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 Chalcedonian definition, right? Like these very standard, like every Christian in the world affirms this as you know the baseline for the intellectual life of faith like we don't have any identity right i mean and this is you know this is ultimately why we need to split because we have students graduate from trinity every year and go off in different directions we have people who move away for jobs and Mm -hmm. for grandkids and they move in different directions Mm -hmm. and i would love to say just find your local Methodist church. Yeah. Nope. It won't be exactly like here, but you know, I know that what you will be taught there is going to be the faith that leads to life. And we can't say that right now. No. My daughter my daughter's hoping to go to a college in Annapolis, Maryland. Um clergy by and large know areas of this nation tend to lean one way or the other. I don't know that right now. I would be able to help her find a Methodist church where um, she would actually hear the true Christian tradition being taught. Not that she would tolerate it if she, you know, if, if a pastor got up and said, you know, well, no, Jesus didn't actually die and descend into hell. Maya would be like, what do you mean Jesus didn't? Like, that's one of her favorite teachings is that Jesus went into hell, stormed the place where Satan will reside forever and set the captives free, right? Like this is, she understands that this is critical to her understanding of God. So I don't think she'd tolerate it, but I, I, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to send her to a, to a Baptist church. I love my Baptist brothers and sisters, but uh, I think they've missed the boat on a lot of things like sacraments. Um, and I don't want her to be an Episcopalian because they have the same problems we do. I don't want her to be a Presbyterian because I don't agree with Calvin. Anyway. So does this answer your question about the Global Methodist <laughs> Church? <laughs> I think for any listeners who are still with us, uh, we applaud you. Uh, just know that this is not a clear-cut issue. 
Uh, there are good things and bad things about both the United Methodist Church splitting. There are good things and bad things about the Global Methodist Church. Um, know that our opinions expressed here are our own. And um, no matter what happens, I think that the most important thing to remember is that uh, as pastors, you and I, Caleb, are very dedicated to this body of Christians um, and to the gospel. And if this church is United Methodist or Global Methodist, um, there's not going to be much change in the life of Trinity because Trinity will continue to be Trinity and do the work of God. And that's the exciting thing, right? So Trinity was formed as the Grove City Evangelical United Brethren right before the merger. And when the merger happened, there was already a Grove City United Methodist Church, so Trinity became Trinity. But here's the thing. The commitment to discipleship that led uh, the Davises and the Stevens and a handful of other families to plant a church on Han Road it survived going from Evangelical United Brethren to becoming United Methodist. And you look at the history of this church and the seasons where we have been fiercely committed to discipleship and fiercely committed to evangelism, God has blessed the ministry of this church. When we've done anything else, it hasn't gone as well. Even we've done good things, mm-hmm. right? But the 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 blessing of God in the life of this church has been when we are deeply committed to discipleship, deeply committed to evangelism, and whether in two thousand twenty five Trinity is United Methodist or Global Methodist or anything else like this church will continue to be about discipleship mm-hmm. it'll continue to be about you know running experiments in the life of faith to become more intimately connected with god um, and hopefully no matter if pastor caleb or pastor serena are here or not trinity will continue to be that i love that about this church right that's yeah, Trinity's got an amazing history. So this is a great church. We're spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. All right. Well, that was exciting. Thanks for grabbing that question out of the mailbag there, Pastor Caleb. Yeah, we have a, a few more, but I don't think we have time. I don't, so. I don't so think we'll we do. we'll save those for later. This is our longest podcast yet. So if you're listening, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for sharing your second pot with us. Uh, We hope that you stay caffeinated and stay in love with Jesus. Take care. Feeling kind of sleepy, really in a lurch. It's reminiscent of all the times that I fell asleep in church. History and theology and some 
anthropology too. We'll figure it out together, so buckle up my buckaroo. Put a second pot on, we're gonna learn what's going on. Just put a second pot on, together discover what's going on.